I am Simone Cipriani and I am an officer of the United Nations. And I'm Claire Press and I'm a sustainable fashion journalist. You are listening to the Ethical Fashion Podcast. We can change the world. Ciao, Simone. Can you believe we're on episode three? That's incredible, Claire. And the number of people who call me to congratulate for the other episodes. I'm so happy about that. Oh, that's good. Are you enjoying being a podcaster? I truly enjoy. (laughs) It's incredibly interesting and beautiful. Okay. This episode is all about sales cycles and fashion production. Now, the current system is all about overstocking and undervaluing fashion. According to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's New Textiles Economy Report, which is kind of the best that we have in terms of figures, global fashion production about doubled in the 15 years since 2000. Simone, do you know how many garments we're producing now? I think it's something around 100 billion garments a year. It's absolutely crazy. It's like a mountain, an Everest of garments. And what about how much of that ends up in landfill or the incinerator? In reality, nobody knows. It's not in the interest of big brands to disclose this and also of the big businesses about incineration and dumping and and managing dump sites and all the rest and waste in general, which is a huge business. But I have seen estimates of about six out of 10 garments end up into that system. So it seems it's huge. I was wondering if you've ever seen those secondhand markets in East Africa. Yeah, I want to mention it. Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. I have seen something in Africa, in Eastern Africa, which is called with a Swahili word, mitumba. It's uh, the huge business of secondhand clothes that come from Europe in containers. They arrive in Tanzania and then they are sent all over Eastern Africa. And it's huge, huge. A mountain of those garments end up into the community markets all over Eastern Africa. And it was already 20 years ago one of the reasons why local production and local capacities were killed. It's because of this huge competition, garments at very cheap price. The same was for shoes. My first work in Eastern Africa was writing the position paper for the shoe industry of Kenya in 2001 or 2002. And one of the problems was exactly that mitumba. We also used some of this mitumba for our bags, and we still use it. For instance, Vivian Westwood asks us to use second-hand shirts, men's shirts, out of this mitumba to make the lining of their bags. I think that is a good example of circular, circular economy. economy. Yeah, absolutely. I think so, yes, yes, absolutely. But that is a story primarily of post-consumer waste, but... This episode is focusing on the pre-consumer story, so what brands are doing. And COVID-19 shutdowns have certainly added to the pressure. I found this from a report from McKinsey and Business of Fashion. It was from April. It predicted that companies will turn to steep discounting to clear inventory for the rest of the year at a minimum. And then it says, and the risk is that the contagion of discounting could spread as quickly as the disease. And then it said reminiscent of the discount culture that took hold in the GFC in 2008. So the question is, where next? Will the industry take this chance to rethink 
or will we see more and more discounts and a kind of hurtling along to an even faster race to the bottom? What do you reckon? In my opinion, that's a very personal opinion, and it's not uh, out of uh, scientific analysis of the situation, but what I see in the industry, my interactions, my conversations with the chief sustainability officers, with CEOs, and with uh, also with purchasing managers. Yes, in the short term, you will see more of this discounting. You will see that in the medium long term, the industry is trying to change their practices. The problem is that sustainability requires a change in the business model. You design for circularity, you design to be sustainable, and then how you organize all your economic uh, material and human resources around that in order to make it possible. So it's really a restructuring of the business model. While what I see, and I repeat, it's a personal opinion, and what I see from my point of observation is that in many cases, the industry just appoints a new chief sustainability officer or gives some more money to a vice president for sustainability to redesign the sustainability strategy to insert some more points for action, some more <laughs> organic materials, some more big goals. Uh, a bit of recycling, a big goal. By 2030. Yes, by 2030 we'll do that. By 2025 we do it in stages. But there is no real change in the business model. Okay, what could be done? I mean, in the short term... It's about trying to manage this pressure to do really deep discounting and devaluing of product. And we know that the pressures of COVID-19 are making that feel more intense. But what else could be done differently? As you said, reducing the number of sales events, this thing on slashing prices in season and the sales and all that. On-demand production, I have friends who speak a lot about that. And then it's about the shift, the circular economy, and it's a shift to a different kind of design. I always tell my friends, designers who are in the industry, hey guys, it all starts with you because it's you who design what things are going to be made and how things are going to be made and how things, how long things are going to last. The value that the industry create is general value for society if it goes a bit more towards circularity. So also the way in which value is calculated, which is of course profit for the companies and the shareholders, but it's stakeholder orientation that we need. Stakeholders is the wider society, people who work in, in supply chains, and of course, consumers with whom we have to have a different relationship. You know what Things we really need? <laughs> We really need. I, no, no. I, I you know what we really need? We really need to wrap this up so that we can get to our guests, Simone. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, 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 sorry. sorry I'm wrapping sorry. you Let up. Me... In this episode, we're really looking at the idea of creating seasonless collections and challenging sale culture. Go. Yes, indeed. And uh, I remember vividly when I was a boy, I remember vividly my mother having her things made by a seamstress and having her things made always with the same seamstress who was able to repair them, to mend them. And I remember her going to shops to buy only high quality stuff. And some of this stuff is still in the wardrobe of my mother. And this is the real circular economy. And it's long lasting. I see on Instagram, my friend Livia Firth, who is always showing up things of her mother of the 60s, it's another age, but we've got to go back to this in a way. 
There's so much to cover, but in this episode, we're really zeroing in on the idea of creating seasonless collections. Yes, indeed, indeed. I'll be talking to Sarah Rovis from the Australian accessories brand Meme Code, and then you will interview our good friend Robin McKendrew, who runs Artisan Fashion in Kenya, the first, historically, the first social enterprise of the Ethical Fashion Initiative in Africa. And then I'm going to be catching up with Dexter Pitt, who is one half of the consciously sourced marketplace Goody. Hello, Sarah Rovis, CEO of MIMCO, a very long-standing partner of the Ethical Fashion Initiative in Africa. We've been together, working together for many seasons and many years. Isn't it so? Simone, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be here with you today. <laughs> Tell me something about MIMCO, the brand. Mimco is an Australian accessories brand. We focus on the women's wear market. Um, we sell leather goods primarily and jewellery. We're very much known for our jewel and we've been around for 25 years. We are direct consumer and we have our own retail stores. We are all about supporting sustainable practices, teaming up with wonderful organisations like the EFI. And for us, it's really about the design. We're a design-led business. So let's have a conversation about fashion because usually when we meet in Melbourne, we always have this kind of conversations. And uh, the first question I would like to ask you is about the speed of the fashion industry. This fashion industry is producing more collections, more and more products. It's not just fast fashion, but it's luxury, fashion, everything in between. Why are we going so fast. There are more seasons than there have ever been before. People traditionally would have thought of spring, summer and autumn, winter. That's really no longer the case. Fast fashion has really created a cycle that can be about four to eight weeks. And then if you don't sell it, you need to mark it down and then produce more and produce more. And it just, it's this ridiculous cycle. The media is really driving this, you know, social media, access to I see something else and I want something else and and so therefore it's trying to keep up with that cycle which is actually quite crazy when you think about it from a consumerism point of view. It is a crazy thing indeed. I think if I think about when I grew up and worked in retail originally you went out you bought a piece to wear out for an event and I think with access to cheaper and faster fashion all of a sudden that one top that you wore out actually needed a new one next week and another one next week and another one next week. I think we've just, it's just this proliferation of constant need for new. There are more brands, there are more retailers, there are more options. It's becoming so competitive and to sell through the amount that's probably being produced is actually unrealistic. If you think about it, we're overproducing for what we really need to consume. And I think the younger consumer and what she's aware of and what he's aware of about sustainability, they're questioning all of these things. Everybody knows that the obsession with newness uh, is fueling this overproduction, this waste. How can we address this while keeping product fresh? It's a fine balance. The desire of newness and the need to have something built to last, to stay there, repairable, treasure. You know, one of the things that we're really focused on in MIMCO is to 
try and reduce the width of the range, give the product space to breathe in a store, let the consumer fall in love with it and understand the true value of the design, the curation and the price and the leathers or the the sustainability qualities, meaning that it'll keep for longer. She'll be able to treasure it for longer. So I think it's going to take time, but it's definitely a journey we're on. I think the more curated we can be as a brand, the more desirable, I hope, this is where things actually do start to change. Let's talk about sales and the pressure to discount. We're just training the customer to wait for it to go on sale. I don't think anyone really truly benefits from it, if I'm being really honest. I guess in my opinion, you know, the pressure starts with the numbers, you know, the numbers, the budgets that are set by an organisation to be profitable to the shareholder or to the owner. You know, costs of doing business continue to go up. Wages are going up. If our sales don't go up with the, the cost of doing business, it becomes a very hard environment to survive. So that's why we, we especially at Minco, try to talk to the customer about longevity, quality, paying more for all of that so that it does last. And, you know, it really puts a lot of pressure on the retailer to get it right. Yes, yes, absolutely. Have you had extra pressure to rethink because of this pandemic, because of COVID-19? I mean, at Mimco, we really had to rethink it. I mean, first of all, if you can imagine, a lot of our product comes from China and Bangladesh. So in some of those countries, it hit them harder first. Our leathers come from Italy and Pakistan. So by the time you move all these products around the world to then come to a place to produce it, you know, the flow-on effect was delayed by the time we got to Australia. One of the things that we were really conscious of is how do you predict demand when everyone had no idea what was going to happen in the world? I've seen recently with some also, some suppliers with whom we have some connection, I've seen some of these fast fashion brands proposing payments because of this pandemic at 180 days. Can you imagine paying a supplier at 180 days? It makes it impossible for suppliers to survive. I do think that fashion retailers and everyone in this industry needs to really think about the knock-on effects that this is having on the bottom end of the supply chain. It really will have an impact and we all have to take responsibility. And so what we decided to do was we needed to honour all the orders we had placed with our suppliers, honour the leathers and the componentry that we'd already agreed to. And if the goods were made, we honoured to take it. But we've asked the suppliers, can we just spread it out over time because we just don't know what the demand's going to be. And then anything that was already purchased in terms of componentry and leathers, you know, we've honoured to say them, we will design to those pieces so that we will use it. We don't want, we, these are long-standing relationships that we truly value with these suppliers and they've been with us for a very long time and we want to support them through all of this so that we're all at the other end together together to do business for the future. And I have to say I'm a witness of that because we've been together for many, many seasons 
you've been with us, in particular with our first social enterprise, the historical one in Kenya, and with all the artisans <laughs> of Kenya. For a very long while, we've seen several teams, design teams of MIMCO coming to Africa. We've been in Australia with you. It's really a long-term relationship, and you always mention design. I think you are right. Design is at the basis of everything. We talk about providence, quality, design-led practices. I really feel we're finding um, more and more through the conversations that we're having with our consumers that there is a want and a need for product that's going to last longer. I don't want to buy as often. I feel guilty to buy more. So therefore, what will last longer? You know, it feels like it's going back to the way it was probably many years ago. And that's the expectation. I have things that I've had for, I'm going to show my age now, 20 years that I still love and cherish and I hope that the products that we do will last for as long as that as well. You know, encouraging people to look after these things and treasure them for the longer period. And it's also another kind of dialogue with customers, with consumers. I remember very well your dialogues with consumers and your workforce in the shops, in the retail art spaces of MIMCO and the tour we did together to speak to consumers, to explain to consumers why that product is important, what was the story behind the product. We love the AFI that we've worked with for so long. It really provides work for marginalised communities, as you've said, and they're the things that we're most proud of. And that's where the values of the brand, for me, really are at the heart of everything we do. And I'm a witness of that one thing. One of the many things I like of MIMCO is that it's an organisation where people matter, where people really matter. And uh, I see you now on video after a long while, the pandemic and all the rest, and it is as if we had parted each other yesterday because we are really together. As we say in the Swahili tagline, which is, Tuko Pamoja, we are here together. This really applies to the partnership in between the EFI and MIMCO. Sarah Rovis, thank you for being with us. And now Claire is going to interview Robin McAndrew, the Managing Director of Artisan Fashion, which is the first, historically the first social enterprise created by EFI in Africa, in Kenya. We started to be sincere in a slum, which is called the Korokocho, with some artisans, and then we created the hub outside the slum, and then we went into the go-down art center of Nairobi, and from there to the industrial area. Now, artisan fashion is a huge hub for a large network of artisans all over Kenya. Hi, my name is Robin McAndrew. I'm the MD of Artisan Fashion, which is a production company based in Nairobi. Uh, making beautiful bags, accessories, and apparel too for big brands like Vivian Westwood and Stella McCartney, Adidas, Mimco, and so on. And actually, Artisan Fashion used to be part of the Ethical Fashion Initiative. That's right. We were part, and we still work closely with the Ethical Fashion Initiative. So we're still associated with them, but we were the first social enterprise set up by uh, Simone Cipriani and the Ethical Fashion Initiative over 10 years ago. As you well know, there are many of them dotted around the world now. Could you tell us a little bit more about the business model and the way in which artisan fashion works? Yeah, so we try to combine the artisan creativity with real production capacity to generate employment opportunities and economic development. And what we do is we would produce typically an order for a brand and then we will audit that order. 
And during that audit, we would have all sorts of different detail about who was employed, um, what percentage were women, what age were those that were employed, what was the level of income, the average level of income, what did that income go towards, whether or not it be healthcare or school fees. And that all comes out in a report uh, that is done within the UN. Um, and then there's a tag that goes with the product and a QR code. And you can flash the QR code with your phone and you'll get all the statistics relating to the product and, and the order in general. The consumer is absolutely able to see what materials have been used and who was involved. And through the purchase of that product, who it is that they've benefited. And the other thing, Claire, that's worth pointing out is that um, a lot of the brands with whom we work are designing for social impact. An important part of the process is uh, working out what level of social impact we might be able to generate with a particular order. For example, if we were doing a order for Mimco and they had a particular desire to engage a high number of women in that order, we perhaps would look to put some beadwork into that order so that we could generate a, a good level of social impact amongst community groups of women in East Africa for MIMCO's collection. In this episode, we're looking at the current system of sales cycles and production. We're asking, do we need to reform it? Who does it serve? And how does it affect particularly artisan producers, in your case, Robin? But I wonder if you might be able to share with us, what do you see as the main problems with the current system? I can only really talk about it from a production perspective. And the two main challenges that we have with the seasonality of fashion are the human resource issues. Obviously, at certain times of the year, we're incredibly busy and at other times less busy and also cash flow. That's uh, difficult to manage given the seasonality of the business too. So we have to adopt an accordion approach, I suppose. We're constantly having to match supply to demand. And there are times during the course of the year where we have a greater demand for product than at other times, which therefore means that we have a, a greater number of staff um, at some points in the year than we do at other points in the year. And it's difficult to manage that. And it's also not ideal from an income perspective if you're an artisan, right? So we have a core team of about 50 odd people that work in the factory. And at times that may be expanded out to 150. The minimum length of contract that we would offer in the factory would be a three month contract. And then outside of the factory, we have 20 different community groups of about 20 different people. And where possible, we engage them too. What do you think the artisans need that brands ought to know and understand? It's, it's really one thing. Mm. It's uh, consistent, predictable, secure income, not on any greater terms, just greater predictability. I think that that is the most difficult thing for our artisans. They're obviously delighted to get the work as and when it comes. But they are also wise to the fact that um, you never know for how long it might last. So if we were to be able to offer them something, it would be wonderful to be able to offer them something that lasted more than a couple of months at a time. We can't give any greater assurance to our artisans of the work that we have for them because we don't actually know what work it is that we're going to be having coming in until several months before it does. Can we talk about who it serves and why we have this current system? Because it obviously puts pressure on you, it puts pressure on the producers. Do you think it serves the brands? 
No, I, well, I, I mean, that's for them to answer. From my personal perspective, one of the most costly areas, um, it strikes me, within brands is the design and product development. If you're developing product throughout the year, you're not, I would have thought, um, optimizing what it is that you could be getting from a team if you were developing a range of product for the year. That's my personal impression of what it is that could be done. What would you say we might be able to do to try and reform it? Have you had conversations, for example, with your brand partners where you say, this puts pressure on us, how could we change it and how could we alleviate that pressure on the producers? Yeah, I'll give you two examples, really. Um, One would be Mimco, who design the styles of uh, bags at the beginning of the year and they will make very minor adjustments um, in the three seasons that we work with them throughout the year. So that's relatively straightforward and to us it makes a lot of sense. Um, There's far less uh, back and forth with regards to the design conversations. And Vivian Westwood too. I mean there was a stage five, six years ago when we would have been making anything between 30 and 40 different styles for Vivian Westwood in a year. Now you're probably looking at something between 10 and 15. So I I do believe that brands are trying to be more efficient in this area. But obviously, seasonality is something that's seemingly an inherent part of the fashion industry. And as yet, we haven't produced a product or a certain number of products every month of the year throughout the year. Mm. Is it getting worse or is it getting easier? I mean, are we speeding up or do you think that there is a kind of push, as you mentioned, those two examples, to try to figure out how to go at a slower tempo? One of the reasons why we're producing less, a tighter range of styles is because of the conversations that we've been having with brands, such the turnaround times that they put upon us, that we've been unable to design and then procure material and then produce product in the 12 week periods that we've been asked to do this in, which is another point, actually, Claire, Um, you know, you might have two seasons in the year, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to cram the production for those seasons into such tight periods, right? I mean, if you have two seasons in the year, in theory, we could find out Mm. six months in advance of those seasons, what it is that we're going to be producing. And then what we would be able to do is we would have a much smoother production run far less choppy from a human resource and a financial perspective. You've obviously got established relationships with brands that you have worked with over several years and that helps you to have these conversations and figure out on a smaller production runs what you're going to do. But what's your take looking on a kind of macro perspective, not just with what you do there at Artisan Fashion, but what do you think would have to happen for brands and producers to come together on this I, I, look, I don't know what the answer to that is. All I can say to them is what it is that would make things easier from our perspective, potentially reduce costs for them, mm. um, which you would imagine would make it more attractive from their perspective too. But I've never worked in a big brand. I don't know what it is that's stopping them from rewriting uh, seasonality. Mm. Um, there must be something, but I, I have yet to put my finger on what that something is. <laughs> Perhaps there's a case of uh, brands not wishing to seem out of touch or move first. Maybe all of them are looking to do this, but they're reluctant to be the ones to make the first move on it. I don't know. We've talked before about this kind of relentless pursuit of the new. There's a cultural kind of conditioning that we have now from fast fashion and global fashion in general that we just want more and more and it needs to be faster and faster. But do you think consumer pressure has a role to play? No, it must do. 
I mean, ultimately, these brands will be looking at their revenue. And if they believe that they're able to generate better revenue, faster margins as a result of getting more product out faster, then um, in the profit-driven world in which most of these brands exist, um, they'd be inclined to do just that, right? But aren't you finding a, an increased appetite from brands to work in the social enterprise space or work more with business for purpose? Yeah, we are. But a lot of the brands with whom we work have commercial models that were set up prior to the motivation um, or desire to work with artisans, for instance. So they also have to adhere to those models. So for instance, for us, we would make up a peripheral part of a production portfolio mm. because we're more expensive mm. than a lot of the other producers that the brand might go to. What would you say to anyone listening from a brand? What would you say in terms of this moment that we find ourselves in the need to ensure that those at the bottom of the supply chain are looked after and are kept in mind when we're making these decisions on how much to order and where to go? Well, I think everyone would call COVID a crisis and there is that saying, that I'm sure most people are aware of. Don't let a good crisis go to waste. What's that effect anyway? I mean, this is a really good opportunity for us all to get around the table and work out how it is that we might rewrite things for the greater benefit of everyone. I mean, if if we're not going to reshape some of these old profit-only commercial models that have been around in the fashion industry for a long, long time, if we're not going to take this opportunity to rewrite those models now or reconfigure them, then... um, yeah, what is it going to take for us to reconfigure them? Now is the moment. And we could come together and work out how it is that we can do things uh, to create shared value moving forward. So I think it represents a good opportunity for us all to open up a, a fresh dialogue on this. Ah, Dexter and Byron, two good friends. We call each other brothers. They're twin. Yeah, you know what we have done with them? We've done something incredible. Uh, they have produced the tote bag, which is called Bassi, in uh, Bologna, Italy, in a social enterprise, which is a spin-off of one of our areas of work. Uh, we have there a center, a welcoming center for migrants from Africa, where we train these migrants on making bags, on the skills of fashion. So they bought our fabric made in Burkina, in Burkina Faso, in Africa, by uh, women artisans, weavers, we took this fabric to Bologna where this group of African migrants led by Basiru, a guy who migrated informally from Burkina Faso and they made this wonderful tote and they named the tote after Basiru who is the leader of the group of artisans in this social enterprise. It's an incredible story. Handmade fabric organic cotton grown in Burkina, shipped to Bologna, where a migrant from Burkina uh, waits for this fabric to come and transforms this fabric into a wonderful tote bag. And now Claire is going to interview Dexter, and it's all about their approach to conscious sourcing. Hi, this is Dexter Peart, one of the two co-founders of Goody, and I'm calling from Montreal today. My twin brother and I, Byron, we sort of had this dream of a brand and a company that spoke to good people, good design, and good impact. And then when you sort of think that through, what does that really mean? On the good people part, we just had this vision that there were all these people that were out there who were ultimately trying to find the solutions for a more equitable, more sustainable, more impactful world. 
but their stories weren't necessarily being shown. And then on the impact side, we were trying to build a platform in a marketplace where there could be a rigorous assessment, um, there can be full transparency, but also that there could be curation of all of these different products and stories. Simone's always been an inspiration to us and a catalyst for, for change and making things happen. We've now, in the last 13 months, worked on a variety of different um, initiatives and projects with EFI. Um, the one that's closest to my heart right now is um, a bag that we've made together with the cooperative um, Cartiera in Italy, and then also with EFI's production and facilities in Burkina Faso. And so we're making this beautiful, timeless, seasonless, ageless and genderless bag that really encapsulates the concept of good people, good design and good impact. Our Bassi Market Tote really speaks to the essence of what our company is all about. Barn and I both strongly believe that design has the power to change the world. And so when you mix good people with maximum impact, but then layer on this concept of design and this idea of having less but better and having companies and makers and artists and artisans really thinking about the functional requirements, but also the sustainable requirements of design as core to what they do is a very powerful engine and a platform for a modern discussion for the future. So you both ran an accessories brand. It was called Want Les Essentiels, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. And you started that in 2007. Do you want to just talk us through how you became perhaps disillusioned with the existing fashion system through that process? I read an interview that Byron did last year with Dazine where he talks about your inspirations for Goody. And he mentioned a frustration with the broken system, seasonality, markdowns and a throwaway culture. Yeah, it sounds very doom and gloom, right? You know, when we started off Want Les Essentiels, from the very beginning, and it's in the brand name, there was this tension and this friction between these concepts of want and need. So wanting something, but then the essentials being we only need certain things. And so there's this concept between desire and need that we thought was just this very, very, very interesting conflict. Yes, we all desire a lot of stuff, but then the question is, who's out there making the things that we really need, the things that we'll cherish, the things that will become souvenirs in our lives? And so that frustration was born out of the fact that here we were right in the center or in the epicenter of a fashion system that didn't necessarily put necessity or function or value as cornerstone properties in the model. And we said there's got to be a different way. And it, everything just sort of felt very antiquated, very not modern. And Barton and I wanted to skate to a concept that felt seasonless, genderless, timeless, and really ageless and borderless at the same time, too, so that all of these constructs that have been built so that you buy more and you buy it regularly start becoming less valuable. And I think when you really think about the things that we love the most, they're the things that we have for the longest. Do you have a no-sale strategy or do you have sales sometimes? What we did from very early on was that we said what we were going to introduce a variety of brands that were lightly distributed or not distributed anywhere else in the world. And we were going to try to keep their products at full price for as long as we could. To date, we've been in business for 13 months. And at the end of 12 months for our anniversary, we had a three-day sale on of just a very select group of items that were on our site. And other than that, we have not been on sale and we don't see it as being a core part of our business. We just It hasn't been. And frankly, we don't see it ever being a core part of our business. It's quite incredible and unusual. But I think it's necessary. And 
again, if I just look at my behavior, which is not a way to run a business, but if I do look <laughs> at my behavior, I don't really, on a daily basis, the things that I use and the things that mean the most to me are not the things that I purchased on sale. They're the things that I thought about, probably took a little bit longer to make a decision. And those are the things that are closest to me in my life. And and I do believe that there is a larger and larger audience for what I said before, are these sort of souvenirs of our lives. And once you attach a value to the fact that something's important to you, it's kind of hard to then say that I am expecting it at 50% off, 60% mm. off, or 70% off. And I think that respect for the other side, for the maker, is extremely important. Because if you want these products or brands to exist, then at some point you're going to have to be buying it for the price and the value that it was set at. It's interesting that you use the phrase not modern. Yeah, well, I think that modern's tricky. But the idea, and guys who believe um, very strongly in design, for something to feel modern, I think it needs to feel a sense of permanence. So whether it's through architecture, whether it's through design, mm. when we think of modern structure, it's the stuff that pushes us forward. So it's not a surprise when we look at how much pressure is on the model, how many retailers and brands have found themselves very much behind the eight ball. It's because they haven't really figured out a way to, to uh, innovate and create a new modern space for a new modern customer who's actually expecting um, brands and companies to do a better job. Churning through product, piling up mountains of waste, increased pressure on designers and brands to discount. Is that old fashioned? And if so, what do you think we can put in its place? Well, I don't know if it's old fashioned, but... I love the idea that we think it is. I'm steering you that way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think that, um, look, some things should stand the test of time. And mm. and there's one thing that's very, very interesting. It goes back, Claire, to your original question about, you know, sort of what is Goody and what's the mission behind Goody? And if you'll allow me to digress for just one second, SDG 12 is about the UN um, Sustainable Development Goals, speaks to responsible production and responsible consumption. And we really love this idea. It's almost these two concentric circles. And one side, there's production, and then the other side, there's consumption. And what we see there is in a very modern sense, is that the marketplace of goody, but also just consumer behavior in general, should put a tremendous amount of responsibility on the consumer Mm -hmm. um, to make better choices. And then on the maker, when they're getting out of bed every day, to make more responsible production. And I think that that feels very much probably like what we would have expected 100 years ago. But then as the world became more mechanical and industrialized, I think we've put less value on things being made to last or things being made responsibly because we chose things that were inexpensive, I'll say cheap or fast. And so, yes, I do believe you're right when you say that maybe what's new fashion is a little bit what was old fashioned, which is people expecting that their product's life cycle will be longer than what's been proposed to them over the course of the last 30 to 50 years in this very sort of mechanical cycle that we've been in, in this sort of postmodern revolution. It is perhaps a blend of a return to old fashioned values, but then an embracing of the new and perhaps the new is around circularity. Let's talk about how you approach circularity with Goody and perhaps a bit more broadly, how you think we might make sustainable and circular models more the new aspirational perhaps. Yeah, you know, that's the that's the perfect question, Claire. I think we let me tell one story. Early, early, early on when we launched Goody, we were in Paris 
and we were at a trade show and there was a young couple, Joris and Vanessa from EcoBirdie, fresh out of design school, an unbelievable idea. They were collecting old toys, like think of those Tonka toys. I have two young girls, seven and 10. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have this sort of storage closet full of all of these old toys that lasted a very short lifespan and little pieces, broken off pieces. And they'd go into the schools and they collect all of these toys. Um, then they take these toys and they use through ingenuity and a lot of innovation. They built out an entire business called EcoBirdy, which takes old Tonka toys and then turns them into these new design chairs. Now, that's amazing by itself. They tell the story about how an old sort of Tonka toy turns into a chair. And it's so gorgeous. But what really makes it beautiful, my kids actually still use the chair. And in this sort of post-pandemic reality where kids are at home right now, my kids are sitting on a chair that is made from old recycled plastic. And that has now become a new chair in 2020. That chair at the very end, although I think it will last a lifetime, could literally be thrown in a recycling bin. So how amazing is it that maybe I'm the lost generation of 47, but that my child at seven is going to see circularity as a function in their lives from their earliest years? And so that inspires us. For us, that's sort of the baseline for what we're looking for when we're partnering with brands, Ecobo, which is another brand from Paris, ACDO, which is this amazing light brand that takes plastic bottles and turns them into lights. You know, the list sort of goes on and on and on, and that's extremely inspiring. And I think that's the future of luxury. We really strongly believe when we take this sort of inspirational element and then we mix it with an aspirational element, and design is really at the core of that, right? There is a new proposition that moves this conversation about sustainability and circularity, which seems like a fringe conversation five years ago, to a very important conversation in 2020 that feels very aspirational and feels like a new version of luxury that I think needs to be talked about. And that's what we get out of bed to do. And hopefully we lead in our little way. But we're leading alongside all of these partners that are from around the globe. We have brands from over 40 countries right now that are all speaking the same language as us. And so we're coming up together. We believe very, very strongly in cooperation. And we think we're moving out of this sort of competitive landscape of people, um, you know, chasing to grab market share to everyone working together to build a better world for both people and for the planet. Thank you for listening, my friends. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at ethicalfashioninitiative.org and we are on Instagram at ethicalfashion. Just don't shout because I feel like it's quite ah, okay. noisy. Okay, just the rest. Yeah, yeah, go on. I have the syndrome of the... Well, you have silent or the, shouting. <laughs> yeah, no, I have the syndrome of the presenter in, in an old Italian ballroom. Uh, oh. where I, <laughs> I love it. Because I used to be a waiter when I was in university. And the waiter, I used to work in a restaurant, which after dinner was transformed into a ballroom. So... It was fun. So did you say, and now it's time for the dancing? And now, adesso si balla! And everybody, boom, boom. <laughs> Can you help spread the word and share our story with your friends on social media? Our mission is to work towards sustainable development and create long-term impact in the communities where we operate. Through extensive training and mentorship, 
We build capacity and enable artisans to produce for the international market. Through this program, workers are empowered and can lift themselves out of poverty. Not charity, just work. 